I should just explain I have this strange career of what you might be calling a practicing academic, which means I sometimes practice at trying to be an academic and practice at trying not to be an academic. Um, I, I was initially a lawyer and actually became an academic. I was at the University of Cambridge for many years as a fellow, and then University of Nottingham, and then for the last 10 years ran an organisation which I would encourage all of you to join, the British Institute of International Comparative Law, because it's a great way of kind of dealing with contemporary issues and you've got people who are from different kind of backgrounds. It's not just academic or academic, it's a real range. So I now kind of divide my time being academic part of it, being a um, barrister part of it, and being a, a consultant. And they all seem to mix quite well. And particularly in this area, what's called business human rights or responsible business conduct. The strange thing is that I find it's less and less about human rights and more and more about different areas of law. So I've had to get to know both public and private international law, corporate law, environmental law, criminal law, tort law. So it actually is quite an exciting developing area of, of, of this kind because it does um, really pick up so many other areas and challenges you all the time to try and see a way forward. Now within this, what I thought I'd look at today is the particular issue of corporations and human rights and to what extent there can be regulation on this, both looking at the law and the practice. So just to give a context, so I'm going to ask you questions. Can anyone tell me what each of these, any of these three are about? Josh. Rana Plaza, good. Bangladesh, massive collapse of factories, many, many deaths. Walmart, Primark, those kind of big fashion uh, industries involved, human rights issues. Anyone else? Ecuador, Brazil, any South American country. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this is actually, it's actually Brazil, but it could, you're quite right. It's, uh, in fact, the recent collapse of a tailings dam in Brazil by Vale, a very good comment though. Um, once again, massive deaths, and, what, and, and of course it is a situation in both instances where, had they done some due diligence, it would have been very obvious what was happening. And this one is more a generic one, it actually happens to be Nigeria, so I've got a variety of different parts of the world here, and that shells pollution in the Agoni Peninsula. So, the, so that what we see is, this is the context within which we have these difficulties, trying to regulate companies in this area. So what are the challenges for regulation? I mean, the starting point is just some factual ones. There are over 80,000 um, major transnational corporations with subsidiaries, which is a huge, huge numbers. And um, if we look at the largest economies in the world, they, more than 50% are not states. They're transnational corporations, if you can draw those kind of comparisons. So we're talking a significant number and big impact. And of course, two-thirds of global trade is actually by transnational corporations. So they are significant impact. But that of course causes problems with us in terms of territorial in terms of sorry, legal issues, which include territorial issues, because the state is used to only dealing with law within its territory. Can they go beyond that? The issue then of kind of what I like to call transnational jurisdiction rather than extraterritorial jurisdiction. Why transnational? Because if it's transnational, because it's following the transnational corporations in their jurisdiction. And then, of course, if one state begins to actually try and deal with the consequences of one of its transnational corporations in another state, 
it automatically raises issues of sovereignty, non-intervention. So it's actually quite got all these international legal issues. Plus, corporations have a nationality. Can anyone tell me where that nationality would be? Sorry, I do ask questions occasionally in these things. I know most of you international lawyers go into your depth. We talk about people have nationality. What would a corporate where would a corporation nationality depend? Excellent. It's a place where it's incorporated. So, a company like McDonald's is incorporated in the US. So then what happens if actually most of its business is somewhere else? Primark is incorporated in Ireland. It has a little bit of business in Ireland. Most of it's in the UK. So how do you deal with those kind of issues? So these are real issues about trying to deal with regulation. Okay. Sorry, I like cartoons. Um, just to kind of ease the burden of listening to me. In case you can't see it, if we go historically, the East India Company and the Dutch East India Company controlled territory. We kind of think of corporations today, you know, they wouldn't do that. That's actually what they did. And then is there now an equivalence with the globalisation in which are we now going back to some of that same control which happened in the past? Okay. So if we're going to look at human rights, we should say, well, what are the ways we can look at this so that we can consider that it's a position that uh, we can look for corporations having responsibility? The starting point on that is under international human rights law, as I'm sure you all know, the obligations are on the state alone, only on the state. In fact, even to the extent, and there's a case called Syriac and Nigeria, before the African Commission of Human Rights, the pollution was done by Shell, the damage was done by Shell, the harm was done by Shell, every single action was done by Shell, other than, of course, the, the Nigerian government gave Shell the contract to enable it to do it. And what does the, what does the Commission say? It says, well, Nigeria <coughs> is in violation of the right to health and the right to life and all the rest of it by breaching its duty to protect the Agoni people by not from the damaging acts of the oil companies. So we get, even when it's very, very clear, the whole damage, the whole fault is by a company, the obligation under human rights law falls back to the state. Similar kind of instance in Fedeev and uh, Russia. <coughs> um, national law, of course, sometimes allows corporations to have some responsibility. But incredibly enough, under some national law, corporations even have human rights. Well, they're not human rights. They're, of course, legal rights, but using the idea of human rights. So this is then a struggle in human rights. Can we then allow a corporate to have some form of human rights, or is that just not feasible? So these lovely balls, I do it demonstrate, it's one of what's often called the billiard ball approach to, to international law. It's a series of these states, all with their own little bit of power and jurisdiction, bouncing along occasionally, sit together, but basically, that's the approach of international law and human rights. Everything is on the state. Now, sometimes the courts have begun to push back at this a little bit. And the way they've pushed is to extend state responsibility. A case which probably most of you know, Velasquez, Rodriguez and Honduras, where the court said, OK, the state it seems to be violating and there's no punishment, then they have responsibility. The same way the state has a responsibility if 
the violation is by a non-state actor. In that instance, it was disappearances by an uh, armed group. But it's the same issue. The non-state actor does something, then the state has an obligation of what's called due diligence, an obligation to investigate, to find out what happened. So you're extending the obligation of the state. The state can't just say, not us, somebody else did it. There are a variety of other cases on this. I have Elmi in Australia up there for two reasons. The first one is definition of torture. If one of you, let's say Sachinta, is caught and grabbed by somebody and fingernails pulled out and all those kind of things, you'd think it was torture, wouldn't you? It is not. If the perpetrator is not a state. Torture is defined by if the public official does it. So if somebody else from this room does it, it's not torture. It feels like torture, but it's not. So the whole definition even of a right is about state-based. So we need to be aware that that's the context. And yeah, the courts have pushed the sort of attribution, the responsibility broader than simply where a state act actors does it. But it is still the state ultimately who has responsibility. So then there's this significant development in the UN Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights. Now, before I go any further, who knows something about that? I'm not going to ask you to give me information, but just so I know the degree of knowledge. Who knows something about the UN Guiding Principles? Oh, great! Fantastic! Good! So, most of you then know, in, in 2011, John Ruggie created, well, was the main author behind the UN Guiding Principles of Business and Human Rights, has three pillars. The state has a duty, a legal obligation, a duty to protect human rights. If any of you remember from your human rights classes, protect, respect, fulfil was a kind of uh, way of looking at this. Protect is the biggest kind of responsibility. Um, respect was the idea of do no harm, and fulfil was the idea of effectively making sure there's a remedy. So use that same kind of outline to say states have the duty to protect, business have a corporate responsibility to respect human rights, and there needs to be access to a remedy. So that's the pillars. Now, by itself, that's helpful and useful, and it got a lot of, kind of traction, and the UN Human Rights Committee endorsed it. But I think what's more important for our purposes is what's its influence on the law. Well, it's influence in a range of ways. I've just given three of them. The OECD uh, guidelines. Um, instead of taking photos of this, I'm sure you can pass around the uh, PowerPoint so you don't feel like you have to, you can, you can actually not feel you've got to take um, screenshots. Um, what's interesting, the OECD guidelines are really the guidelines from the most developed uh, states, and they're binding on them, they're not binding on the corporation, but they were revised in 2011 to include human rights obligations on corporations. Similarly, the IFC, which you would know all about, the IFC, part of the World Bank, um, International Finance Corporation, has performance standards which people must meet, now include human rights. The equator principles, which are about finance project, um, mainly private banking, now includes obligations about human rights. So even within the, the kind of um, uh, broad framework of international law, we're beginning to find some development. And then, as we'll see in legislation, business practice, to become what somebody else called authoritative soft law. So it's more, it's certainly not just no law, 
and certainly stronger than being kind of super soft law, if you have a sort of a spectrum. But it begins to make a difference. I want to look, like, I want to look at, well, what does that mean for regulation? But before I do that, I just want to quickly, though I hadn't realised quite as many of you knew this, so I apologise if this is um, largely familiar. I'll just go through it quite quickly. Just to clarify what the parts are, pillars are. The state duty to protect human rights is the, one of only two guiding principles which has the word must in it. It's a clear mandatory duty on states. And so it said, it just is the existing legal obligation. The interesting thing, and to pick up the point which was very cleverly made about corporations just having a nationality of incorporate, where they're actually incorporated, they said, no, it's a, the terminology is now domicile. And domicile is slightly different. Because domicile could include your main headquarters, where they are. It could include your main place of, place of business. So the Primark example I gave, its main place of business is the UK. So it would now enable the UK to have some ability to regulate it. Um, so that's quite interesting. Um, uh, thirdly, we're talking, uh, you know, it seems to hint that you might be able to deal with transnational effects. The other element which is often neglected is states often give a lot of incentives for corporations to act around the world. Trade, uh, investment incentives, those doing bilateral investment treaties will know that states are doing a lot of this. But they're not putting in place yet many restrictions in relation to what companies they're then giving these incentives to. So that could be a way forward. The difficulty is <clears throat> with compliance and um, what's actually happening. I'm going to touch on this in a moment, but just to clarify. If, you, if a state puts in place an, a regime where companies um, uh, breach, say, a human right and they then get a penalty, or they, uh, whether civil or, or, or political, sorry, civil or criminal, where does that money go to? Anyone? If there's a fine, where does it go to? Okay, that's great. It's more specific than it. It goes to government. Um, it does not go to the victims. So we have this problem that even if the state acts this way, the victims will not necessarily get any kind of outcome. So there's now talk of, sadly enough, I'm involved as an expert in whether or not uh, there should be a treaty on this area. Second pillar is a corporate responsibility to uh, respect human rights. And basically that requires three things of a company. A policy, human rights due diligence, which I'll explore a little bit more in a moment, and remediation. But what's fascinating is it's for every corporation, big and small. And it's for all human rights. So I have another question for you. Which human rights do you think a business could not breach? Yes. Sorry, come back to you. Yes. Good. That I mean that would make a lot of sense, except that of course in many instances. Um, if somebody uh, perhaps is acting on behalf of a business or whatever, the business itself might well have an interest in what they're 
evidence might be, so they may well be restricting the ability of that person to give full and fair, fair evidence. Plus, in some states, of course, the actual structure has additional element to which the corporations might well be actually owning the building, restricting who enters it. So that it could be a range of factors where it may not be in a large way, but there, I don't know if anyone saw the movie The Circle, which is kind of an interesting idea in which this company, back, like a, 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 um, a kind of, uh, like I guess Apple or Google or whatever, got bigger and bigger in what it did, and in the end it was running the voting system. So there's ways in which um, it's surprising how it can extend. I think in some instances it's going to be unusual, but that's uh, one element. Human rights due diligence is an interesting process. The idea of human rights due diligence, which I've done probably a lot of work on, maybe too much, um, which I've done a lot of empirical work, um, interviewing, surveying hundreds of companies to say, what do you do on this? It's a clever idea, human rights due diligence, because companies said, oh, we know what it's like. And uh, human rights lawyers said, we know what it's like. But actually, they're different things. A business due diligence, if two businesses merge or one takes over another, they do due diligence. They check what are the liabilities, what are the risks we have if we take it over. It's about business risk. Human rights due diligence is about the impacts on the victims. They start from different bases. Yes, the consequence of the impact is a risk to business, but that's not the starting point. And so actually there's quite a significant tension time and time again I go into companies and they struggle with that. The other thing is they say, oh, we have a CSR department. CSR, Corporate Social Responsibility. Corporate Social Responsibility does not begin at the same point that human rights begins. Most corporate social responsibility, when they're dealing with it, they're dealing with it on the basis of what's in, in the good of the company, philanthropic or whatever. So when Nike decides to fund children's playgrounds so they're much safer for children, there is a consequence behind that, thinking, oh, and then these children are going to buy Nike. There's an element of marketing. When human rights begin, when human rights start, it's what's the aspect of the victim and then the consequences. I have many fights with CSR people on this. But nevertheless, they start from different bases. And the third thing is, this response exists independently of what the state itself might be doing. And that can cause real problems for businesses sometimes. But that's what it's set out. And then just to say, the, the consequences are they have to avoid causing or contributing by their own actions, and if it's a business relationship to which they're directly linked, then they have to prevent or mitigate. Now that's quite, there's been a lot of debate about what this means. Um, uh, for example, the bank said, oh, we can only be part, you know, our responsibility will only ever be the third one where we're directly linked, where we need to do what's called use leverage. But actually that's not true, banks can, directly facilitate a breach of human rights. If a bank is giving funding to a company operating in Democratic Republic of Congo, they know full well there are real issues there about breaches of human rights. So the finance sector, I think, is quite important on this. I have to, I mean, you probably, I don't know, can you read the cartoon? Maybe it's too small. It's my favourite cartoon. It's this guy handing over a document that says, run this by the legal department. 
but runs super fast so the ethics department doesn't see it. And in many ways, my research shows, that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but companies don't show it to the lawyers. Why? Because they don't know what the lawyer's saying. Wait a minute, we have problems here. So trying to look at this area is, is not so straightforward. Simply just to finish access to remedy, <clears throat> often the issue is states erect barriers to prevent claims. I'm going to mention one of the claims coming up where this certainly happened. And companies also need to have grievance mechanisms. Once again, just to give an example of some of the remedies. As you can see, these are all pretty new. Regulation of corporations in this area is still at the very beginning. The Californian one was the, probably the oldest there, slowly proceeding with more things. The, the, the most recent and most powerful legislation we have on this is the France Duty of Vigilance Act, which puts obligations on companies of a certain size to make sure they know what's going right down their supply chain and reporting on it and report on what they're doing. And if they don't report and they don't do it, there's a civil penalty. I'm going to mention in a moment some of the litigation, but that's just to show kind of the outline. Not to forget host state legislation. Some host states, not many, but some, have put in place some legislation which also restricts what companies do. So I just wanted to give a bit of a, summa a summary of some of the litigation, just very briefly, just so you can see a different form of regulation. In the US, <coughs> there was the Alien Tort Claims Act, which you're probably familiar with, an unusual, weird, strange act, piece of legislation, which kind of showed that um, the, uh, if there was a breach of custom international, the law of nations, as they called it, then you could bring a claim in the US, even though the act happened outside the US, the perpetrator was outside the US. They came into the US, you could bring an action against them. <clears throat> but by a couple of cases, US Supreme Court has basically knocked that out. Having said that, there are still state actions. There's a case called Barbara and Neste I've got up there, which is before the Californian, uh, under the Californian uh, Transparency and Supply Chain Act. And that's quite interesting because Nestle won. It won because it could show human rights due diligence. It had a defence. I'm a great believer in having defences of this kind. Um, I'm certainly, you know, a significant minority on that. But I think that you need every, every means to incentivise companies to do this. Canada has a couple of interesting cases. One just heard by the Canadian Supreme Court, Orion Nevson, about um, abuse of uh, labourers in Ethiopia. And its basis was customary international law. Within uh, continental Europe, Brussels 1 and Rome 2 regulations have opened the whole door that you can now bring in any of the European states an action against a company which is headquartered there, but the action happened by a subsidiary somewhere else. Perhaps the most, the case which has gone the furthest is Appan and Shell in the Netherlands, where Shell was found liable and by its parent company and its subsidiary for its actions of pollution in Nigeria. Germany, there was a case called Kik, which is just, they've just lost before the German courts on a supply chain basis. In France, most of the cases have been criminal, which is quite interesting. 
Um, Amesis is a case where a um, telecommunications company um, was gave, um, sold a whole lot of equipment to um, uh, Libya in the, in the Gaddafi era and then found out that that was then used for surveillance of all the opposition people. People were killed on the basis of using this. And then, of course, now there's a criminal case again. No due diligence at all by Amesis. Um, just to come to the UK, this, there's a... There's interest, I mean, the UK is probably the furthest ahead in thinking of, well, let's talk about it from a slightly different way. Let's see if the parent company has a direct duty of care to the victims or, the, or by the actions of the subsidiary. Because if you think about it, corporate law, these are all these same billiard ball bubbles. If a, com a company, each company, even if it's a subsidiary, are separate entities and can be only sued themselves. So all of you probably have done various tort cases where there's a negligence issue, a duty of care, and that is usually between, let's say, the consumer and the manufacturer. But we're saying, wait a minute, here we're talking the manufacturer is actually got um, selling products somewhere else, which then causes damage to the consumer. Is that still a duty of care, where this other entity is actually in another state. We're not even talking in the same state. And that was the Vedanta case. Um, I should declare I was, I acted for the interveners in that case, uh, called Coalition and the International Commission of Jurists, before the Supreme Court just a couple of weeks ago. And the issue was, does a parent company owe a duty of care to the victims of its Zambian subsidiary? And of course the Vedanta said, no, it can't. We all have this separate corporate personality. You're inventing a new duty of care. And, of course, we said, well, international developments are moving that way. Comparative developments are moving that way. I just have one thing which I, I struggle with. Most of the cases, actually, other than the French one, which has been more criminal, talk about duties of care or they deal with negligence or they deal with something which is a tort law, an obligations law area. The trouble is it doesn't mention human rights. So if someone is forcibly detained or raped or something by a, a, a corporate security, they have to twist it into a tort language. So it's you know, things like trespass to the person. What a stupid language. If you've been raped, you don't want to be thinking, oh, this is a trespass to the person. But that's the kind of problem you have of twisting it into a tort action. Why? Because there's very few bits of law you can grab onto which are human rights law. Because if you think about it, even in national law, most of the human rights law um, have obligations on public authorities, not always on private authorities. And then, of course, where's the best forum? The best forum should be in the state. Talking twelve years to get to this case, and it's not even—it's only a preliminary issue. Okay. So, also, what we see are—you don't need to know them all—enormous number of barriers of access to remedy. This is another favourite cartoon of mine, which is, "Hey, want to watch Monsters Inc.? No, I'm afraid of those monsters. No corporations." Um, so, what we find is a range of barriers to, of access. What claim you bring, form of non-convenience. Very often it comes up, the company says, hey, it shouldn't be here. And I have a lot of sympathy with the company. It should be held in Zambia. 
but it's not held in Zambia because you're not going to get a remedy in Zambia. And it might even be that the, co the parent company has absorbed all the uh, assets of the Zambian company so that you get nothing even if you bring a case in Zambia. There's a range of different problems there which I've listed. But what I wanted to show you, so these are, I've shown you where we've got a little bit of movement of regulation. But what I wanted to show was actually the strange thing of what companies want. I was the special advisor to the UK's Parliament's Human Rights, Joint Human Rights Committee when they did an inquiry on the business, uh, corporate responsibility. And this paragraph summarises what we did. We managed to persuade a lot of companies to appear before us, which was pretty amazing. Time after time, the companies that appeared said, actually, we have a willingness to improve standards and we welcome more regulation. I mean, that's a shock. The committee was really surprised. I actually wasn't so surprised, but the committee was really surprised. Companies want more litigation, more regulation. Why? They want legal certainty. They want to be clear what the position is. And these are just some of the comments of those that appeared before it or um, in their various written submissions. Time and time again, they want more regulation. Now, before you think this is some wonderful altruistic idea of companies, why might a company that is doing quite a lot in this area, trying to be good on its kind of relationship with human rights, why might they want more regulation? Yes? Good. Exactly one reason. Because then they've got clarity about where they can defend themselves saying we are doing whatever they say. Good. Great answer. What's the second reason? Yes? Exactly. Why be you know, really good and, and very sort of ethically helpful on human rights if all your competitors are ignoring it and undercutting your bids? So it's a competitive issue too. Good, good point. So we have, we can't completely see this in neutral terms. Having said that, sometimes those companies which are actually flying um, with human rights, doing human rights diligence, get the contract. Why? Because then the actual state or the company that's entering them is a bit more reassured. They're not going to then have a problem by what that company does. But it is exactly that issue. There's a competitive element to it too. The other thing which is quite interesting is more recently there was a um, uh, Modern Slavery Act in Australia only came into, was only passed in December last year. And what is extraordinary about this is the group that pushed hardest to have a Modern Slavery Act were the corporations. They were the ones behind it. Andrew Forrest, CEO of one of the biggest mining companies, said, this is the thing we should not have in any corporation in Australia. Yes, of course, the NGOs joined with him. But you've got a powerful face. You've got corporations, NGOs running together towards government saying, this is what we do. Passed in extraordinary quick time. So we shouldn't always ignore the fact that actually corporations are moving towards wanting more regulation. Now, of course, it's not perfect. And we always have to recognise that 
Just like states don't want too many liabilities on them in human rights, companies will also want maybe not too many regulations on the consequences. But what we're seeing is peer-to-peer -peer kind of <coughs> responses. There's a corporate human rights benchmark which looks at what companies are doing. Interestingly, Vale, who was the one behind the Brazilian tailings dam, has been removed from the benchmark because they said, you seem to be saying all these things and that's why you're on the benchmark, but you're not doing it. So what does all this mean for regulation? I guess what it means is, firstly, that um, there is a real need for still having legislation. <coughs> legislation which particularly sets out remedies and compliance. And where it's been, most of the legislation that has been, hasn't actually been in corporate law. It's area that interests me. To what extent can, corporate, can we look directly at director's duties, directly at what a corporation does and say, for example, Singapore, they brought into effect some stock exchange requirements. You have to actually have something about environmental issues. Why? Because there was all this transnational pollution in Singapore. So that's needed. But the industry standards is also quite important. Both leaders, in the UK the leader has probably been Paul Polman at Unilever, where they say this is what we want to do. There's an awful, awful lot of laggards. And, you know, if you're Unilever and you're, you produce washing powder or you produce soap or whatever, and you're not doing a good job, people can protest and say, no, we don't like what you're doing. But if you're the manufacturer that manufactures paper clips, are we really going to go and protest out on that? So consumers are a pretty poor interest group often because mentioned Primark and Rana Plaza. Their sales drop for about a week or two, pick right back up again. So consumers, you know, industry peer-to-peer may be more pressure um, there and a reputation risk. And then using these private claims, these kind of tort claims, a form of regulation. The other area in industry standards is investors. If we could manage to persuade the finance sector, the investor sector, to think actually, one of the risks we take into account is how that company can deal with a human rights risk. It would be transformative, absolutely transformative. And why is that important? That's important because it then affects the decision-making of the company. And it is a risk. You're going to invest in it. Let's say, I gave the example of a company investing in Democratic Republic of Congo. Human rights is going to be a factor. You should actually be part of the investment factor. And then you might begin to change, um, uh, change behaviour. The pension funds, particularly the Norwegian pension fund, Norwegian sovereign wealth fund, have been quite active on this. There's, I mean, there is, a, there is a downside too. If you're a parent company, like in the Vedanta case I mentioned, and you feel that, let's say the court does decide you have a duty of care for your subsidiary, Clever lawyers are going to work out a way that, well, we're not going to have parents and subsidiaries anymore, are we? We're going to do it as franchisees, like McDonald's does or something, so that we have a, a problem on that. And I think there is an international standards role. National contact points are the OECD guidelines, um, pretty ineffective, but they can push standards. The other area many of you know about are, of course, investment treaties and trade treaties. 
in a bilateral investment treaty case, what's happening is the company is opting out of the national law and having its decisions about its activity decided by a, an international arbitral body. So already then you're out of the standards. And what if the consequences of what the corporation's doing affects human rights in that state? Let's say, there have been cases about this right to water. Right to water is not being upheld by an arbitration body. So there is a tension here between investment and trade treaties. And just in case this is the cartoon says, you've got a problem with avoiding personal accountability. And the answer is, yeah. And whose fault is that? Finally, actually not, almost finally. What does that mean about business? If we're trying to regulate them, how they are then creating regulations. I think they are beginning to create this kind of voluntary rulemaking. This sense to which social expectations are changing. But of course, social expectations are sometimes like, which society are we talking about? Because often it tends to end up at some parts of some societies. But they are making changes. They are beginning to kind of act. But still in a, in a way where they are defining and limiting their own responsibilities. And as I said, there's differences between leaders and others. And I think civil society and states are crucial, but the best is if they all work together. And then just to finish, I told you about this billiard ball approach. I actually think that is really the type of legal system we're dealing with today. It's no longer satisfactory to just talk about state-to-state -state international law. The reality, international organisations, companies, uh, people, civil society, non-state um, non armed groups, they are all influencing international. So international has got to begin thinking, how do we regulate this? so that it is a system that works. So I think you know, the issue of trying to regulate corporations in relation to human rights is just part of a bigger kind of issue of how do you deal with a kind of clarity of what is like a rule of law, what is a, a regulation within this broader field. Thank you.